Hello, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. In this episode of Stick Together, we're featuring the fight for a fair outcome in the South Australian Nurses EBA negotiations and the consequences for Australian jobs with the Federal Government's decision to outsource manufacture of Australian Armed Forces uniforms to China. But before we do, a quick word about the Earthworker Co-op's Walk With The Valley initiative, which kicked off on September the 19th with a launch at the steps of Victorian Parliament I spoke to Anna from Earthworker Cooperative in Morwell's Latrobe Valley for some background. Yeah, so um, Earthworker Cooperative, uh, as some of your listeners might have heard, has been working for a while now to set up a worker-owned cooperative uh, in Morwell, manufacturing tanks for solar hot water systems. Um, So this week we're actually walking from Pakenham to Morwell, basically calling for, for just transitions to get the government and the community behind the idea of a transition for the Latrobe Valley, um, moving into like a more diverse economy into the future. Now, the, wor- the walk is uh, kind of similar to the idea of a freedom walk, really, isn't it? You've, you've just had your launch at uh, the Parliament Steps in um, Melbourne. And uh, what's your next step, literally? <laughs> so we're... Right now here in Pakenham, we got on the train after our launch at Parliament and caught the train out to Pakenham, uh, and we're just packing up our gear and and the walkers are about to head off. So we're going to walk to Tainong today, which is about um, 12k down the road, and then after that it'll be Bunyip the next day, and then Druin, Warrigal, Yarragon, Maui, and Morwell will arrive on Sunday. And this is to uh, gain a local awareness as much as uh, an extended awareness of the need to diversify, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a few things. Um, you know, it's partly it's literally connecting with the communities that we're going to walk through. So we've got meetings with community groups along the way. Um, and we've got folks from the Valley and from Melbourne and from other parts of the country coming on the walk. So to kind of make those those connections and have those conversations and as well to to show to the state government that there is widespread community support for this transition like the Andrews government have committed 40 million dollars towards transitioning the Latrobe Valley um, at this stage it hasn't been committed to any project so we want concrete action now basically yeah right because earth has been working hard hasn't it yeah, yeah. So we've we've been working on this for a while now. Um, you know, we had a big community investment drive, um, which has allowed us to secure uh, equipment and and a premises in Morwell, um, which is ready to go. We just need um, a bit of startup capital capital to get that worker-owned cooperative off the ground. So this walk is a fundraiser as well. How can people help? We're asking people to go to the website, walkwiththevalley.org, and um, all of our walkers have, or some of our walkers actually, have set up sponsorship pages so you can have a look through reasons why people are walking, what's drawn them to the project, and like why they 
think that this is an important cause and you can sponsor somebody's walk. You're walking for our future, you know. Yeah, we're, we're walking for everybody's future. It's, you know, it's more than just a valley. It's about trying to build the world that we want for all of us. Stick, stick together. together. Yeah. Stick together. together. Yeah. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. You're on Stick Together with Annie McLaughlin, Union News and Workers' Stories. The South Australian branch of the Australian Nurses Midwife Federation when they started their negotiations for the new EBA, since the old one finished on July the 1st, believed that the EBA negotiations were all settled until the government stalled at the jump, refusing to make commitments around safe staffing levels, job security and conditions. I spoke to Elizabeth Darbars, the ANMF South Australian Branch Secretary, for a breakdown of what is happening as they head closer and closer to industrial action. Look, we've uh, been involved in negotiations over a new enterprise bargaining agreement uh, for since March of this year, and formal discussions were completed in July 2016. Uh, so it was a, approximately a three-month bargaining period uh, during which we thought we had uh, been quite productive and we believed that we had, in fact, uh, reached a resolution um, that was going to be presented uh, both to Cabinet and, of course, then to our own members. Um, we were absolutely shocked to discover that after two months of waiting uh, with promises that the matter would go to Cabinet, which we, un- we always understood it would need to go to Cabinet for uh, approvals, um, that, uh, that, it, uh, that after two months we were no closer for the matter going to Cabinet and uh, we didn't really uh, know what the time frame was in connection to that. Um, and again, you know, we believed that we had a in-principle agreement given um, we had in fact uh, had um, a joint statement issued by us and the department to our members saying that we believed that uh, that something was going to be put forward to Cabinet and that it would in due course be provided to our members. Now, um what we're concerned about is the inordinate delay uh, in providing a formal offer to our members and there are some outstanding issues that um, as time wore on we no longer felt comfortable or confident that we did have resolution on in particular um, staffing levels in aged care services in country South Australia. Uh, we have for a long time argued this point and uh, on every occasion we've been told, oh, well, we might resolve it or we should resolve it in the next enterprise bargaining agreement. Well, we believe that we had been very patient and the issue is one that's completely unfair and unjust and that is so elderly people receiving residential aged care uh, in country South Australia, for people who are under the main roof, they would receive a minimum staffing level of 3.2 nursing or care hours per patient day whereas those people who were not under the main roof, they are not entitled to a minimum of 3.2 care hours per patient day. Now, that is just a gobsmacking. So what that means is people people may not even get washed. Well, they probably will, but the question is uh, how often yeah. uh, and, uh, and, uh, and what kind of other supports are they getting. I mean... You know, we would all spend at least 3.2 hours per day looking after our basic needs. Needs, yes. Feeding, cleaning, 
uh, taking our medications and the like. So the question is, why, why is it that just simply based on the location of a person within a facility, why would they be entitled to less care than someone else's location? If there was an argument being mounted uh, based on um, resident needs or acuity levels, that's something that we would be prepared to, to, to uh, have a debate on. And uh, However, uh, I don't believe that the debate is being cast based on that because there is no argument, there is no sustainable argument on that basis. So uh, then it gives rise to this really ridiculous or ludicrous argument of um, given a person's geographical location on a particular health site that they are entitled to less or no minimum uh, staffing level, whereas someone who's under the main roof is. Uh, I mean, it's just a nonsense. What's the restoration of Level 3 and Level 4 conditions? What's that about? Uh, look, for Level 3 and Level 4 uh, nurses and midwives, what used to happen previously is that they would be paid um, overtime, including on-call and recall, when they were required to support the direct clinical care outside their normal rostered hours. The problem that we've been confronted with is that uh, there was an argument uh, run some time ago, and uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, conceded at the time, or you know, given away, I suppose, for whatever reason. And um, they are no longer uh, entitled to those overtime rates. And what we found is that previously, we, we believed that that those level three and level fours were perhaps not actually doing that much of that, that work. What we're finding is that people are now being asked to do that work, and we believe not being appropriately compensated. So the problem is that they're becoming a, uh, a default substitute. So instead of calling someone else in in order to do that work, mm. um, these level threes and fours are getting called in instead and, um, and really not being remunerated appropriately. I mean, they're just getting their ordinary wage. And then, I mean, the problem with that is that not only are they just getting their ordinary wage, often they can't find the time to take in move, uh, which... Yes. Really, you know, they, they, they shouldn't be doing their full-time work plus this. So it's so crafty penny-pinching. Uh, yes, it is penny-pinching. That's exactly right. Yeah. And yeah. so the next thing, of course, is uh, uh, the increase in professional development allowance. Of course, n- nurses uh, have to up uh, do uh, professional development every year. They do. They do. Um, yes, look, professional development is absolutely crucial. Um, there is a mutual obligation, really, for both the, the professional to be involved in their professional development and also the organisation as well, because, of course, the organisation has an interest in keeping people well-educated and, and the like. Um, we had, for a long time, uh, an issue of the employer saying, yes, we do already provide professional development, but not being able to provide the evidence to support that. Um, so last enterprise bargaining round, we uh, managed to make an inroad into that by successfully arguing and, and achieving a $700 um, personal um, amount that would go to every single person so they could spend it the way they saw fit. Uh, so we'd always flagged that that was just the starting point and we were seeking to um, to achieve something closer to uh, 1400 on an individual basis. It is something that's been successfully used in other states and territories and we believe that the department had indicated some support for, for progressing that way um, but we feel now that that support is being withdrawn and we're um, obviously uh, very concerned about it because 
uh, this is something that is so important to maintain community standards in, in the care that they receive. Let's move away from those more individual sort of elements and go to the two last elements, shared benefits from any productivity and efficiency improvements, which then also seems to tie to the targeted voluntary separation packages, really. These are structural, aren't they? These are extremely structural. Enterprise bargaining, in fact, was always predicated on sharing productivity improvements. I mean, that that was the basis upon which there were arguments that were run to say that enterprise bargaining would be a positive thing for both employers and employees. That was the basis. Now, in healthcare, historically, it has been extremely difficult to demonstrate that type of uh, activity. However, we believe that we do have a golden opportunity at the moment um, where we are under the... uh, uh, proposals of you know making quite radical changes under transforming health. Um, we don't necessarily agree with all of the aspects of transforming health, but there are some basic principles that we do agree with, which is as long as it's providing a, um, a quality improvement for patients, then we'll be supportive of it. Uh, and if it does mean that there are positive outcomes for patients that also translate to savings, then that's a positive for the for the broader community, and that's nothing wrong with that. And we did, during the course of uh, the negotiation period, demonstrate some examples where cost savings were made by new initiatives that we participated in and, in fact, uh, actively spearheaded, including what's called nursing-led discharge, which means that the nurses can discharge a patient rather than having to wait um, for hours, if not days, for a medical officer, but only, of course, under safe and appropriate circumstances. We had, were able in those discussions, for example, to demonstrate that savings had been made in the vicinity of $15 million. Now, oh, my goodness. Um, yes, uh, look, and that's a really positive thing. That's a, a great uh, outcome for our community. The question then becomes, well, if we're going to do all this uh, work, which is wonderful, uh, and the premise upon which enterprise bargaining is made is that um, those productivity gains should be shared. Why is it that they're not being? Um, we're not looking to... Uh, well, Elizabeth, uh, you're just being too logical. Things. You're just being too logical. <laughs> oh, well, I think that's, I think that, I think you're right. Uh, and, uh, and likewise, with, uh, in terms of separation packages, we're very well aware that um, in, the, in the event that there are efficiencies to be made, and, and we're not shying away from that. We, we think that there can and should be um, improvements in the system, again, as long as they're um, going to improve the outcomes for patients, um, uh, then it may well be that uh, beds may close. And then, of course, what follows a bed closure uh, can mean job losses. Now, given the circumstances surrounding that, we believe that um, uh, separation packages um, should be agreed and settled within the bargaining uh, regime. Uh, and again, that's, that's important in terms of job security. We know that we've been uh, promised no forced redundancies, but we want to see that in black and white in an enforceable instrument, being the Enterprise Bargaining Agreement. And we also want to know what terms would be on offer for people in the event a voluntary redundancy were to be offered. Since uh, you've not been given any real clear indication of what the government intends to do, since September the 12th, you've been having meetings with your members haven't you? That's correct, yes. So since that time, we've been having meetings with members, uh, asking them uh, whether they'd be prepared to take action. Overwhelmingly, they have been. The only uh, more recent change that's occurred, or possibility of change, perhaps, is that uh, last 
Tuesday, uh, we did receive a phone call to our office um, from the uh, state government representatives indicating um, that they were going to be meeting, uh, there would be a cabinet meeting on Monday. Um, however, we're still not 100% sure precisely what they're putting up to cabinet, uh, nor when we would hear back from them formally. So look, we're, uh, of course, always hopeful. Um, however, uh, and it, you know, from our perspective, um, uh, should there be uh, some uh, an appropriate offer put on the table that we can share with our members, then clearly um, the campaign uh, that we're currently undertaking would be off, and we would be instead talking, uh, going to out to members and talking to them about about um, what the offer was. So that would be a, a complete change of tack. And of course, we are hopeful. Uh, but uh, but we'll continue on at this stage, uh, planning ahead for uh, undertaking industrial action. Yeah, and you're you're aiming for September the twenty sixth, and this is uh, that's correct. Met- metropolitan as well as country. Yes, that's right. It's statewide. It's metropolitan areas plus country areas, uh, and really we we have um, been emphasising uh, with the metropolitan areas that it is ever so important to support their uh, country colleagues. Um, uh, because some of those issues do affect their, their, their country counterparts very significantly, such as those um, residential staffing levels. We have been hearing very loudly and clearly uh, from the country members that it's just unsustainable and it's not fair on those residents to be receiving um, uh, really bottom-rate uh, care. So action would be in four stages. Level one would be commencing on the 26th of September, um, moving uh, through levels two, three and four, and level four would be commencing on the 17th of October. Uh, and so uh, all of the industrial action um, is uh, heavily uh, designed to have the maximum impact upon the employer and government and to minimise uh, as much as practicable the impact on patients because really uh, we are about uh, making sure that patients uh, do get safe and appropriate care. It's always in our interest, it's always forefront of our mind and in fact that's what we believe that we would be supporting in obtaining an appropriate agreement for nurses and midwives um, is that community support because you must look after your nurses and midwives in order to provide the community that care. And one of the fundamental aspects of our agreement is in fact safe and appropriate staffing levels and skills mix um, across the community and that is just ever so important for people to be able to receive the care they both need and deserve. You're on Stick Together with Annie McLaughlin, produced at 3CR Melbourne and distributed by the Community Radio Network. Our final story today on Stick Together is about outsourcing Australian jobs. The federal government announced that it was outsourcing the manufacture of Australian armed forces addressed uniforms to China. I spoke to Michelle O'Neill, who's the Secretary of the Textile, Clothing and Footwear Union of Australia, about this issue, and had a quick word also about the talk of the TCFUA amalgamating with the CFMEU. Michelle O'Neill. Look, this is a decision by the federal government that really makes no sense, but it's not a new decision. What they've done is they've had for a number of years this crazy procurement policy where they say that 
the Defence Force uniforms that are combat uniforms, they've committed to making them here in Australia, both the material and the uniforms. Uh, but if it's so-called non-combat uniforms, there's no requirement that they be made here. And this was an announcement that under that policy, they're actually making non-combat so-called dress uniforms for the army in China. And we think this makes no sense. It's an artificial distinction between uniforms, of course, but also it raises the very real questions about this government's sort of lack of concern about manufacturing jobs and also lack of concern about ethical requirements in their procurement policies and in what they make. So what's it going to mean to your members? Well, what it means is that the company that got the tender is a company that employs a large number of our members in Bendigo in a factory. And, of course, what it could do if it was having that work go into that factory is it could provide more security for those workers in Bendigo, but it also could provide the capacity to employ more workers. And they don't just make work here in Bendigo. They also contract some of that work out to other smaller factories in Victoria. So it would really, if they were getting the order for the non-combat uniforms as well as the combat uniforms, it would not only secure the existing jobs of our members, but it would provide the opportunity for more jobs in an industry that desperately needs them. There's thousands of workers in the textile, clothing and footwear industry who are highly skilled, hard-working workers who have lost their job in this industry, who are looking for more work, and the government is completely oblivious to what's happening to those workers and their families and their communities. Now... What's the uh, logic behind this? Is this just a cost-saving measure? Well, that's how they justify it. They claim that it's cheaper, but that, of course, doesn't take into account any of the human and community factors of what happens when workers lose jobs, when communities are left without viable industries. And it also doesn't take into account the real cost because increasingly that sort of work, um, it... You know, it used to be that the Defence Forces would just make thousands and thousands of the same product and they wouldn't care about the size of the soldiers and they wouldn't care too much about uh, any sort of variation. Whereas now there is a real issue about quality, so making sure it's the absolute safest possible thing that uh, a someone in the armed forces could be wearing. Secondly, there's issues to do with security. It, of course, if things are not made... Onshore, there's greater risks about them being stolen and counterfeited and there's security issues around that. But also, it it is just nonsensical to not factor in the real cost of workers being unemployed, of communities without secure and viable jobs. And the Australian economy, of course, um, also bears the brunt of that. So there's the human cost of it, but there's the economic cost of that too. None of that gets factored in when the government says it's cheaper to make in China. And, of course, what they don't say as well is, well, why is it cheaper to make in China? Because there's got to be questions about the conditions and rights and rates of pay of the workers who are making the uniforms in China. And we care about those workers too. So there's nothing that... Uh, commits this government to having an ethical manufacture of their products. Actually, the Abbott and now the Turnbull government, when Tony Abbott was elected, scrapped a requirement in the government procurement guidelines that they would source products that were 
accredited with Ethical Clothing Australia. And so they, they, they actually got rid of that requirement and actually stopped the funding to ECA um, Ethical Clothing as well because they don't care about what's happening to workers in their supply chains, and we do. So we think this is a, a bad decision. We think the government should be having a consistent procurement policy that supports local workers and local jobs, but also ensures that anything that is made with taxpayers' money is made ethically. Before I let you go, could you... Uh Tell me a little bit about the amalgamation of uh, the Textile, Clothing and Footwear Union of Australia with the CFMEU. Yeah, this is uh, discussions that we've been having over a period of time and that we've been talking to our members about um, as well. And it'll be a decision that our members make, but the feedback that we've been getting from our members is that they're very positive about proposals to merge the TCFUA and the CFMEU and uh, we think it's really in the very best interest of working people and we've got a really proud union and proud history of fighting for our members as has the CFMEU and we think there's some real really exciting opportunities about the future of the union movement that would come out of it but ultimately it's our members that will make the decision and it hasn't yet gone to them for a vote. In the past uh, collective organisations of workers have been built around the work that they do right and that makes sense of course but now there are other issues that are afoot isn't it that is being expressed by this notion that you guys might actually amalgamate. Uh, there's also connections in terms of work. So the CFMEU um, has a division that covers workers in the um, furnishing and forestry and pulp and paper um, areas, and we've got members that manufacture uh, soft furnishings also, as well as them having them. We've got members that um, manufacture some paper products that they also have members that manufacture in that area. So there's some crossover in terms of the industries and, and if you just think about machinists, for example, that might make clothing, there's a very similar group of workers and skill set for workers that sew making clothing than workers that sew making um, soft furnishing. It's also got other connections. We cover the workers, our members manufacture carpet. They cover the workers that lay the carpet. So there's quite a lot of um, work and industry connections that people don't automatically think about. But of course, there's great connections about the sort of campaigns and struggles that we have. So we're both unions that fight hard for jobs. We're both unions that I think stand up um, and for you know progressive change in Australia and try and make sure that we have a, a more just and equal society. And uh, there's a lot in common in the sort of way that we work industrially and politically. That's it for Stick Together today. Thanks for you for listening. Thanks to Anna from the Earthworker Cooperative, Elizabeth Darbars from the AMMF and Michelle O'Neill from the TCFUA for talking to us. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 We love to hear from listeners and if you've got some local labour stories, we'd love to cover them. 
My name's Annie McLaughlin. Catch you next time.